0: a country and after my shadow
1: welcome back to the Camino podcast episode 61 I'm Dave Whitson
0: nobody asked me my name
1: two years ago Rebecca Scott of the peaceable kingdom in Moratinos and two-time guest of the podcast announced an upcoming publication by Lori Dennett related to her experiences during some of the key moments in the Camino's resurgence over the 1980s and 1990s. I immediately reached out to Lori to express interest in getting her on the podcast. Well, her book was delayed, then my podcast was delayed, and then those two years gradually slipped by. Sometimes, though, things end up working out, as I finally returned to the podcast in January, Lori's book, Waybread. Memories of the Camino for the Onward Journey, had just hit the virtual shelves. I may have been the first person to get a copy, Rebecca hadn't even started promoting it yet, and I devoured it across two sittings. I'm excited about every topic that I devote a podcast episode to. That's one of the advantages of doing this as sporadically as I do. There's plenty of time for the interest well to refill, and no special pressure to churn out new material. But this is the kind of episode that really gets me fired up. The chance to engage with living history. The people who were there before the modern boom, before the crowds, before the comforts and commodification. Lori was there. You may already be familiar with her walk to Santiago in 1986, as she wrote about it in her pilgrimage memoir, A Hug for the Apostle, some 36 years ago. Her new book, Waybred, is a collection of essays and speeches that Lori wrote and shared over the years, and it offers a window into those formative times. In the conversation that follows, Lori and I focus on three main threads, her experience with Elías Valinha San Pedro and the village of Vosabrero, the founding of the Confraternity of St. James's Refugio Gauselmo in Rabanal del Camino, and the ongoing evolution of the Camino Francés. Laurie and I spoke at 9:30 a.m. this morning Portland time, and I'm recording these final pieces at 5:30 p.m. Pacific. If I don't blow anything, I'll have this live within an hour after this. A Sunday very well spent. I hope you enjoy.
0: Well, Fire away. Did you enjoy reading the
1: book? Yeah, absolutely. I am always hungry for books that tell that, quote, early history of the Camino, of the Camino's resurgence, the 1980s. There just aren't that many in English. So yours fills in some blanks, I think, for a lot of English speaking pilgrims. And, you know, obviously your previous book, A Hug for the Apostle was tremendously helpful for that as well. And so let's go back. Let's start at that moment, and then we'll work our way up to Waybread. All right. You first walked the Camino in 1986. That's right, yes. Unfathomable, I think, to a lot of us that came to the Camino later, walking in 1986. How did you learn about it at that moment, and what drew you to make that journey in 1986?
0: You know, of all the questions people have ever fired at me, that is the one that I still can't answer. (laughs) Because to my knowledge, I had never heard of it. I did not know that there was such a thing as the Camino de Santiago. I had a boss who went to Santiago, the city, on holiday and came back raving about it to all of us in the department. But I did not know that there was a pilgrimage route to it. And it was a kind of inspiration. I don't, I can't really explain it. I think I say at the beginning of Hug, I was reading one night a detective tale as it happened. And I suddenly, it was as though a light went on in my head. I suddenly dropped the book and thought, I must walk to Santiago de Compostela, and I thought, "Where on earth is that?" You know, and <laughs> I did broadly know it was in Spain, the city, but I didn't connect any more about that. And I resumed my detective novel and thought no more about it. And then, about a week, ten days later, I was called by that boss, as we all were in that department, and told a whole lot of us were going to be made redundant. And the company had hit the rocks, and we were each going to be able to walk away. We were being asked to walk away with a year's salary, tax-free, and just disappear, basically, Just, just leave. Wow. And something niggling at the back of my mind said, but that midnight idea that you had, what was that all about? So I then did try and find out something about Santiago de Compostela and found that there was a a walking route to it. And I had been longing to make some kind of fundraising helpful gesture towards the MS Society of Canada, because uh, my mother had MS and my brother now does. And I, in fact, have a nephew who also does. And so, you know, it it was my mum back then. And I thought, well, Maybe with this time and money, I could do something that would be helpful. And because I'm a historian, I thought I could turn the tables on the idea of inventing some novelty, like jumping out of an airplane or something. And I made a joke about running the Great Wall of China because some character had just done that in London. Some Londoner raising money for some cause or other. And I thought, well, maybe I could capture a bit of attention by doing something old rather than something new. So it all kind of evolved from that. But it was a fairly long time in percolating, you know, into taking shape. And I had a great stroke of luck when I went back to Toronto at Christmas in 1985 and discovered that the man who ran the Spanish tourist office, the Spanish consul, actually came from La Coruña and had walked to Santiago as a university student. And of course, he you know, greeted me very effusively and said, well, let me tell you all about it kind of thing. So from there on, it was definitely something I wanted to do. And it was a question of talking other people into helping me do it, you know, helping me achieve it. First of all, the MS Society of Canada, I thought they're going to think I'm mad, but in fact, they didn't. The woman who said yes to that project is coming out here this spring in May to walk the Camino Portugues, and she's going to come and visit me here. So that was pretty wonderful. And then my father's old radio station. I went in to talk to them, expecting them again to say, well, nice idea, but not quite our thing. Whereupon they said, great idea. And his old colleague said, yeah, you can phone in to me a couple of times a week. And we'll field the calls and we can make it a fundraiser for MS where people just send a donation to the MS Society. So it began like that. I never dreamt that it would go farther than that. I thought I'd do it, come back to London and start looking for another job, basically. Well, famous last words.
1: (laughs) It's funny how it goes from being unfathomable to inevitable in almost no time. Yeah.
0: Well, I think one thing that helped was that I never asked anybody to help in a financial way. Mm. I always said, look, I've been given this chunk of money. So if I do a fundraiser for MS, I'm not looking for sponsorship. I can sponsor myself. What I want you to do is please promote what I'm doing so that people who are interested in what I say over the radio then sit down and write a cheque for MS. I don't want to see a penny. And I never did and never did on either of my subsequent journeys either. So I'm really pleased to say that I did through those three long walks row to Santiago, Rome and Jerusalem. I don't know whether you knew I'd done the other two as well, but together the three of them really did raise quite a significant amount. And I was very happy about that. Uh, you know, It was the, what made it all seem worth it to me. But of course, after Santiago, I never viewed the whole thing as just a fundraiser again. In fact, by the time I was halfway there, I had ceased to
1: view it as just that. It became
0: very personal and very much a life changer. So here we are 30-odd years later, you know?
1: Yeah. As you say, 30-odd years later, you had a chance to see the Camino in a moment in time before all of the changes were brought upon it by the popularity of the resurgence.
0: Yes, I did. I did. And that is pretty amazing when I contemplate how it has changed, when I remember what it was like. You know, some of the distances were enormous because there was nowhere to stay, nowhere to buy provisions or even find a fountain in some stretches. And you kept going because you had to keep going. The alternative was lie down at the side of the road um, because there was nothing there. The local folk were as wonderful then as they are now, as they continue to be. But there were perhaps a quarter of the albergues that exist today. And of course, that meant that the Camino really was confined to walkers and cyclists who were fit enough to do it. Whereas now the great resurgence has meant that with all the new places and the shorter distances between possible stops, it means really a lot of other people can do it. People who are retired or who are people with children, you're not forced to do a distance that you really find a strain. You can always find somewhere to lay your head and find a decent meal and and certainly fill your water bottle within a very reasonable distance. And that's enhanced the whole experience, I think. You know, it's made it much more universal as it would have been in the Middle Ages. You know, there would have been places at every step back in the 12th century, too, because the numbers would attest to that. Ron is giving 100,000 pilgrims a year a meal. And the Archbishop of Santiago attesting to in the 12th century, also 13th, to the fact that the roads were thronged with pilgrims of every station and every age and every nation. And that's pretty impressive. So Mm -hmm. we're only going back to what it must have been like at some point in time.
1: What are the one, two, three most vivid memories that you have of places on that first pilgrimage in 1986?
0: My first sight of the Pyrenees, after five weeks of walking in the rain in France, <laughs> on the first dry day, coming over the crest of a hill and suddenly seeing that panorama of the Pyrenees from east to west, as far as my eye could see, just that ridge of mountains in the distance. And I let out a yell of triumph. I just couldn't believe it. It knocked me sideways, it does to even work to remember it. So that would have been one just sheer beauty. You know, once I, I must say, I didn't take in too much of the beauty of France, although I was aware of it because the weather was so dire. But once I got into Spain and it became sunny and warmer, of course, it it was nonstop beauty. I think the meseta to me is beautiful. I know some people find it challenging and even boring, but I never did. I always thought it was magical. And uh, I think I say in The Hug for the Apostle, that kind of heraldic metaphysical beauty that it has, because it's so stark, and yet it's so full of eloquence to me. And then, of course, Ocebrero and Galicia, which found its way into my heart, and here I am living in it. That, to me, is just unending. I still think Every time I park my little car up there, I still think the view from Osobrero is the most beautiful view I know, and I've visited 35 countries in the course of my life, and I have never seen anything to challenge that. So there's your three.
1: (laughs) So let's transition then from Hug for the Apostle to Waybread, and also into Osobrero. I want to talk about Elías Valenia San Pedro, who is this mythic figure on the Camino, Mm -hmm. the man who painted the yellow arrows. Yes. But there's been very little actually written in English about him beyond the arrows. Yes. He's not just a figure of myth for you. He is someone who you knew. Can you talk a little bit about his life and what brought him to the Camino and his impact upon the pilgrimage?
0: Yes. He became a very good friend And I came to respect and admire him as well as regard him as a good friend. I did not know him well at all until really the last few months of his life. But I certainly used his guidebook. That was something the Spanish consul in Toronto gave me right out of the packing crate because it had just arrived in 1985. But yes, he was a young seminarian studying for the priesthood in in Lugo in the 1950s, born 28. As a 16-year-old, he'd have seen Osubrero for the first time on an excursion from the seminary. And he told me in one of our many conversations during the last few months of his life when he felt really well enough to talk. And of course, he was a man of very few words, usually. But about the Camino, he could talk as long as anybody would let him. He saw Osobrero when it was in ruins and people were living there, but in a really grim state. And when he had been ordained and had done one or two other things, and was then asked if he would like to be parish priest of Osobrero, he said yes after three others had said no. Osobrero had had three parish priests in seven years, and they'd all had to to leave for one reason or another, health or elderly parents, or one just because he couldn't stand it. But Elias said yes, and that was in 1959 that he was appointed there. So he was 30 years old by then, and he persuaded his elder sister, Amelia, to come and lend a hand there with the parish and uh, eventually with the works that he managed to organize. He managed to get the Ministry of Patrimonio interested in restoring the place of Bellas Artes and Arquitectura and so on. And in 1962, he got two very famous people, Manolo Chamoso Lamas and another man, Soroya to undertake to do an archaeological excavation in Osabrero and then to repair the church and hospedaria, the old monastery as it then was, because they were both falling to bits. They were in a dreadful state. But along the way, he persuaded them also to take over the Paiothos, the Celtic constructions in which families were still living and to give the families modern houses with running water and sanitation, which there had not been in Osabrero up to then. So it was really primitive. And all of a sudden, these folk were offered houses, and they and the paliofas were then taken over by the Department of Bellas Artes and repaired. The roofs were repaired, and they were repaired, and everything in them. Was conserved and one was turned into a kind of ethnographic museum. The others were really used for store, and one eventually became the first pilgrim refuge in Osobrero. Once Elias actually got going and pilgrims began to come, he turned that into the first refugio before there was an albergue. And so he, from 1959, he dedicated his life to Osobrero, and at the same time, to reviving the pilgrimage route that ran through Osabrero and had been its reason for, for existing for so long. It was a settlement even before the Camino, but the Camino, in a sense, gave it such life as it had for centuries. So at the same time as he was doing all of this, he was carrying out his doctoral research on the Camino, walking it and studying it in documents for a a doctorate that he gained from the University of Salamanca, one of the great universities of the Middle Ages. And he published his thesis in 1967. In the midst of all this work, nobody ever knew when Elias ever slept. He was quite remarkable that way. But uh, he did have this remarkable appetite for work. And he not only was a scholar, but he taught himself how to do things. He was a great tree planter. He was a great wall builder. If anybody remembers the hospeteria doesn't function as a hospeteria now, but when it did, the chimney, the chimenea in the corner of the dining room, he built that with his own hands and he taught himself how to do all kinds of things. And he got local workmen and got experts to come and train them so that they would also have a trade when they finished that. And there are still people around today who learned that trade from somebody in the course of building the hospiteria, of rebuilding things, electricians and bricklayers and stonewall builders and roofers and so on. I think one of them even worked on this house. But anyway, so that was Elias. But he produced his very first little guidebook to the Camino, a tiny wee book called Caminos a Compostela in 1971. And it was intended to fit into a pilgrim's pocket, and it consisted of just the information that a pilgrim would need to walk from place to place. But the Camino was not waymarked then, apart from a few stone markers which the Franco government had put up in 1948, because that was the first holy year since the Civil War, and they did try to to do some reparation then. But the Yellow Arrows didn't happen until 1982-84, so Elias produced this little book. And then, with the approach of the Holy Year in 1982, the uh, Ministry of Tourism asked him to organize teams of scholars along the route to do some maps to scale. Now, he, in fact, drew them all, but he amplified the text of Caminos a Compostela and got other people to check it and so on, and they produced what we now call the big red book, the big fat one, which was almost square, not practical for a pilgrim at all, but it did have maps in it. And then in 1985, the ministry renewed that, that request that he bring it up to date, but altered the format so that it was the long, thin red book with the long maps that you could read from bottom to top as you went along. And they would just fit in a big pocket, put it that way. And then, of course, his last guidebook, the one that I helped with just getting it through the press after he died in 1989, that was published by Galaxia in um, 1992 for the holy year of 93, really. And um, it was quite different. And the maps are to scale in that one. He recognized that maps to scale were very necessary. And then after that, another friend and I got his cartography published as a separate volume. And that is now really a historic document because it was to scale and his hand-drawn maps, they're very beautiful. That was actually published in the UK because we couldn't find any publisher here in Spain who was prepared to pay that much to do it in five colors, and who could have done it, really needed an expert cartographer, and we found one in the UK to do that. So those are the books. And, you know, his life was shared between the parish where he attended the local folk with great devotion, and they remember him with tremendous affection, and pilgrims who did begin from the mid-80s to materialize in the way that he had dreamt that they would. And he loved to talk to pilgrims. I mean, really, after God, he loved pilgrims. He, <laughs> he was never too tired, even when he was ill. He was never too tired to talk to pilgrims, and he always wanted to know about their journey and how they were finding it, and just their impressions generally. So anyone who ever met him won't have forgotten him.
1: Do you get a sense of what drove that passion for his work on the Camino. Was it an extension of his passion for Osobrero that by bringing back the Camino, he would ensure the lasting success of Osobrero? Or was there something more there?
0: Well, yes, of course there was. The man was a priest, you know. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) And to him, the pilgrimage was very much a way of faith. But I think, in fact, I know he saw it in an absolutely universal way. Of course, he was a Catholic priest, but he saw the pilgrimage as universal. And he recognized that it would be as true an experience for someone of another faith or even of no faith, because I think his real faith was in humanity as people who see God in another person. And I think he always did that. He had that wonderful breadth of vision to see anyone, any pilgrim, any villager, no matter how educated or uneducated, or whether he got on with them or whether they didn't, he saw that person as a brother or a sister. And I think to him, that was what the pilgrimage was all about. And that through that vision, people would then discover their own faith, not his faith, but their own faith. They would find a deepening of that. And, of course, it has been a Christian pilgrimage and a Catholic pilgrimage for centuries. But I think Elias was a, he was a visionary in many ways. And he, of course, saw it that way. But that wasn't all he saw it as. I think he foresaw many of the things that pilgrims today seek. And he knew that people would come who did seek that. I think his longing was simply to get people to experience the Camino and find their own way to either God or whatever their interpretation of God was, or a humanistic interpretation, and take that home with them and live it. And that is how he saw the Camino being worked out in society, making the world a better place, if you like. And his great friend, I do quote him in Waybread at the end of chapter 11, the one that says is about the Camino 2000 years. Where is it? Where did it come from? Where is it going? I quote another dear cleric, Don José María Alonso of San Juan de Ortega, who spent decades there receiving pilgrims and dishing up garlic soup every night and just sitting them down to talk, not so much with him, but with one another. And when a film crew asked him what on earth he was doing this for, you know, what do you get from this kind of thing? He said, oh, I'm just changing the world one by one by one. That's all. And, you know, that is absolutely it. And in a nutshell, you send someone home with a different altered view of the world and they then live that out in whatever their context is, whoever they are. And I think that is a very important thing. I don't know a political party or a cause that could claim as
1: much as that. Beyond Elias, you also have this long relationship with Osobrero. And as you said, it's a remarkably evocative place. Every pilgrim who has ever walked through Osobrero has been struck by the magic feeling that permeates the air. For those of us walking through, we just get this snapshot we get this brief glimpse at a village and often we're mostly interacting with the surface level pilgrim services aspect of the village. We're seeing it at a very busy moment. You see Osobrero from the vantage point of decades being there in the off season. You understand it on a level that those of us only passing through never could. What is it like to live in a village like Osobrero. What is the life of the village like?
0: Gosh. Well, first, let me clarify. I don't live in Osobrero. I live about two and a half kilometers down the hill in a hamlet called La Laguna de Tablas, and there are nine people living here, including <laughs> me. <laughs> we have lots of cows, dogs, cats, chickens, you name it. I have very, very nice neighbors. Osobrero... Out of season is very magical. People see the best of it in a way if they can come in the late autumn, winter, early spring when there are not that many people around and they can interact a bit with the villagers because the villagers are always happy to interact with pilgrims. They love to talk. And if people speak enough Spanish and in some cases Gallego to talk, they will find ready participants in conversation there. In the summer season, when there are so many pilgrims now, it's often quite difficult to get to talk to them because they're engaged in actually doing their work. And they're making up changing beds, they're waiting tables, they're doing this and that. And the other thing, they're driving a taxi cab or serving in the bars, you know, they haven't got that much time. But in the shoulder season and the winter time, they do It's a quiet place. Usually it used to be quieter. It's not so quiet now. But, you know, if you sit there long enough, you see tradesmen coming through, the baker comes and unloads his sacks of bread. The delivery guys come, the post girl comes and does her round and stops to chat with everybody. It's very much a place where everybody knows everybody else and a municipality where everybody knows everybody else. So lots of gossip and chat always, and, you know, have you heard, and oh, did you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, like any small place. But I guess the heart of Osabrero is still the church and the Franciscan community. We we have a Franciscan community in residence now, and the Fraipaco has a tremendous outreach to pilgrims. So if people walk through O Sobrero even at a busy time of year, they shouldn't miss going in and trying to find him and having a word with him. He speaks about six languages and he celebrates a most beautiful pilgrim mass at seven o'clock in the evenings in the summer and six in the winter, where he gives the pilgrim blessing. He makes a he says a beautiful homily and has it read in various languages by pilgrims that he can find, as many pilgrims as there are speaking different languages. And then he has a lovely ceremony at the end where he offers each pilgrim a stone, a small stone with a yellow arrow on it. And he explains that this stone symbolizes their life in their hand. And that yellow arrow is unconditional love. And that carries their life forward. That is something to think about as they carry on to Santiago and go back to their life in whatever place it is, maybe the other side of the world, it may be down the road. But that motive power of the Camino is really the power of love. And he asks pilgrims to remember that. Again, it's the same kind of idea that I was trying to express before. He expresses it far better than I do. But I also wanted to say, I think Osobrero is an important place in the spiritual geography of the Camino, because when people toil up that difficult ascent, that difficult incline, and they finally sit gasping on the wall when they get to the top, at some point in their time in Osobrero, I think it steals over their mind they suddenly realize that there are no more great, big physical challenges. If they have made it up there, they will make it to Santiago. And on the other side of Santiago is home. What they come to realize is the task of the next week is beginning to think about how they're going to integrate their pilgrimage into their life or rather as I say in one of the essays in Waybread, how they're going to rephrase the question, how they're going to alter their life to fit the pilgrimage, because they've come to realize that the pilgrimage is far more authentic and meaningful in many cases than the life they left behind. So I think that's about as much as I can say about Osabrero. It's a great privilege to live near it, put it that way.
1: We'll shift focus to a different mountain town because in Waybread we hear about Osobrero and we also hear about Rabanel del Camino. Yes. And the role that you played with the, the founding and the funding of the Refugio Galselmo. Could you talk about that story and how this stalwart pilgrim lodging, serving pilgrims now for more than 30 years, came to be? Oh, yes,
0: with great pleasure, because it really has been the most wonderful adventure, I think. I walked through Rabinal in 1986 and had a fairly colorful night there, as I wrote in Hug for the Apostle. It was, I slept in the old schoolhouse on a door that had been cast aside. I had been walking with a couple of other pilgrims, but only one of them had done that particular stretch. So there we were in that old building and it was freezing. And there were, at that point, about 16 people in Rabanal, And dear Chonina, who was then the youngest person living there at 62 or something, <laughs> you know, she very kindly gave us hot soup and a blanket each. And really, I mean, typical Camino, real hospitality insofar as she was able to offer it. She did offer it without even questioning it. And it just, you know, you, you just came to value that so much. So I walked on feeling very grateful to her. But unbeknownst to me, there was a British man about a month behind me on a bike with a cousin, a man called Walter Ivans, who was cycling along. And he stopped in Rabanal. And he had an amazing meeting there with an elderly lady who turned out to be Chonina's mother, who was in her 90s. And he asked whether there was anywhere to stay, anywhere they could buy anything. And and she said, hijo mio, no hay nada aquí, no hay nada. And Walter bicycled on, remembering that just echoed in his mind. And in Waybread, there's a chapter six is a transcription of an event that later on a number of us in the confraternity did, where we talked about those origins of Rabanal, and Walter's own words are there, so I won't spoil that. But basically, Walter conceived the idea of somehow being able to rebuild some kind of buildings and bring life back to a village. And I think he always had Rabbanal written on his heart, as I did on mine, you know, because it was such a a game little place. People were struggling to survive there. But when the confraternity was approaching its fifth anniversary in 1988, the main committee, which we by the time, Walter and I, were both on by then, we were asked to think about projects or a project which the confraternity might embark on to celebrate our fifth anniversary. And Walter put forward this proposal. And in fact, he cites Osobrero in his proposal. He said, why couldn't we do something in a village in that desolate area rather like what Don Elias did in Osobrero, and try and bring the place back to life. Anyway, we wrote to the Federation of, of Spanish Associations to ask whether they would be interested in this idea. But we didn't say where we would like to go. We left it to them because we didn't feel we had the right to dictate where we wanted to go. We said, send us where the need is greatest. And in fact, they took a year, but they turned around and sent us to Rabanal. And we were thrilled. So Walter and I and another colleague called Paul Graham were the first members to be sent out to have a look at the building that someone out here in the Amigos of Albierto had talked the Bishop of Astorga into. Letting his association and ours fix up as a pilgrim albergue, he's a Monsignor now at the Basilica of Liangthina in Ponferrada, Don Antolín, and he met us and took us to see this building, along with several others that the same builder had fixed up. And he was proposing that we would raise the funds to do the building, and they would organize the building works, and this builder would undertake them, and so. We were, to be quite honest, frightened rigid at the sight of this ruin. If you've been through Garselmo, you'll have seen the photographs of what it was like before. In fact, in Waybread, there's a photograph of Chenina standing in front of it as it was, great big hole in the wall and the roof falling in and so on. Anyhow, we debated long and hard whether we should take on this project or say thanks but no thanks. And we decided that really we had to go ahead. It was our Camino and that place had our name written on it. So we went back to London and said, let's do it. And the rest is history. We then spent two and a half years fundraising, doing all manner of crazy things. Some of them quite wonderful, some of them quite mad, a lot of them fun, a lot of them very hard work. But we had made our £50,000 commitment. We'd reached that in just under two years, I think. And the place opened, from having seen it in March 1989, it opened its doors in October of 1991. So, so there we are, and it's still going.
1: It's amazing. As an aside, I tend to focus mostly on text when I'm reading, but one of the amazing things about Waybread is the collection of archival photographs that you have featured in there. It's amazing.
0: Well, I'm glad you think that. That's grand. That's grand. Well, I think the chapter six, which is a transcript of what we each said in an event that we put on in 2002 in a church basement in London, because we realized we had new members who didn't know anything about how Rabbanal came about. Mm -hmm. And that was 10 years after it opened. And we thought we just cannot let that happen. So we just said, we'll each stand up and talk about the part we played. And so there it all is. So if listeners want to know about it, there it is in our own words, there was no script. We just stood up and
1: spoke. I mean, that's the value of Waybread writ large, which is all of these different things happened over the history of the Camino, but most of us have come to it far more recently. We don't know how it happened. And you tell the story.
0: Well, yes. And Waybread is the product of my pandemic in a sense. These were essays I'd written over the course of fifteen or twenty years. In the course of having all that time to reread an awful lot of stuff, I read them over, and I suddenly thought, because you know, you, there are a lot of disturbing things going on and to do with which, which had been niggling at the back of my mind. I really felt a bit mean, grumbling about them because I thought it's just inevitable. But the more I thought about it, rereading those and realizing just how much had changed, I thought maybe these can be of some use as a collection with an introduction and an afterward. But here is history. You know, there's a lot of material here that I know more recent pilgrims have not been exposed to, either because it's not available in English or because they're too young or because many of the people who enacted a lot of this have now passed away. You know, people like Don Jose Maria Alonso or Don Elias—they're gone now. So you can't sit down and ask them anymore. This is the next best thing, you know, in a way—not to presume, but I just thought maybe these things have some use. And the other way in which I hope they will have some use is that I do feel that the Albergues de Donativo have such a fundamental and essential part in conserving the Camino spirit and passing it on to new generations, I really would like to see them survive. And in a way, when people have choices, I view the material in Waybread as helping people make choices that they may not realize they have if they haven't got that information. So putting information into people's hands and leaving them then to make a free choice and opt for for what they really can see as important, having read that.
1: That leads me into the other big thing that I wanted to talk with you about. You mentioned that many things have changed. One thing that hasn't changed, I couldn't help but laugh when I was reading some of your essays from the 1990s, and it was instructive to see that you and other pilgrim leaders at that point were already concerned about the loss of the traditional Camino. Very similar conversations, similar worries that seem to recur when pilgrims today are thinking about the state of the pilgrimage. Yeah. I liked how you framed it in several of your speeches. You previewed this earlier in our conversation when you were highlighting how the Camino has become more inclusive, that the development has brought its good aspects. And then there are also the the downsides, the risks, the concerns what do you see at this point today as being the fundamental ongoing tensions that are at work as the Camino continues to grow?
0: I guess the tendency, perhaps, that a lot of pilgrims seem to to just opt for all the measures that remove effort from the Camino. The Camino is not meant to be easy or fácil. You know, these trucks that I see, these vans that I see that say Camino Facil, Camino Comodo, is not meant to be comfortable in that sense. Complacency, you know, might as well just live the same way you live at home. That's not what the Camino is about. You know, maybe you don't have to carry your stuff every day, but carry it some days because you actually learn a lot from doing that if you just heave it into a taxi or a van every morning and you walk free of your burden, you never really learn, or maybe you forget that you've learned, what you really need and what you can live without. And that is a very salutary lesson. I'm not saying, I mean, the local taxi drivers would probably be very cross if they heard me saying that, because now, you know, a lot of people make their living out of this now, and I don't begrudge that. It's a a free choice. Nobody has to send their bag by taxi. And being able to do that may make the Camino possible for somebody with a back or hip problem who couldn't otherwise do it, you know. But if you've got a choice and you're reasonably fit and healthy, it's very salutary sometimes to just go without one or two days and just see what it feels like and have something to compare it with. These devices that I've never used one, and I I kind of find them amusing. These ones where you can, every time you feel remotely thirsty, you can just drink without having to stop. You never have to look for water. You never have to get the bottle out and figure out how to calculate how much you've got, etc. It's just, I mean, really, (laughs) it just is. It's not what it's about. Part of what it's about is learning your own limits and your own capacities, your own strengths and weaknesses, what you can put up with, what you can't, etc. Those are lessons you take home with you. And the Camino imparts that kind of knowledge in return for a bit of effort on the pilgrim's part. You put into something or you get out of something what you put into it, not just on this, but in anything. And to make it so easy, I think is in a sense, missing the point. And I'm not a Puritan. I'm not advocating great rigors or anything. But just don't deprive yourself of a a learning experience. That's all I would say. For heaven's sake, don't walk along plugged into, as I often see pilgrims walking along this beautiful stretch of road, plugged into some device. I mean, there's birdsong there. There's also traffic to watch out for. Give yourself time to contemplate nature and the beauty of everything that's around you instead of being plugged into something that you can listen to any old time, including later on in the day when you're having a rest. Except, again, I groan when I walk into the bar in Ospero and I see a dozen pilgrims sitting there, not speaking with one another, not conversing over a meal or whatever, everybody sitting there poking away at a mobile phone. I think, my gosh, you're only here once and now. Make the most of it. You're never going to meet somebody from New Zealand or Zimbabwe back in Brooklyn or wherever. You're just not, or you may not. And take advantage of the chance to get to know fellow pilgrims. Use that time to really deepen relationships with people that you'll have the rest of your life if you can do that. I mean, not not don't talk to people at home, but I don't know, dispose the time wisely is what I would say. And of course, enjoy it, enjoy it.
1: You mentioned the importance of Donativos. So I want to circle back to that as well because it comes up in the book in addition to the points that you've made here. Why are Donativo accommodations so important to the Camino spirit?
0: I think because they are the continuing expression of the kind of hospitality that has sustained the Camino through the centuries. The people like Tronina in Rabanal, whose parents and grandparents, as she told me, always laid an extra place at the table, were very used to having pilgrims come through and ask if they could sleep in the hayloft. And they were always allowed to do that. And if it was cold, they were invited to sleep by the fire. You know, the Donativo albergues don't specify a quantity. They welcome the pilgrim in. They take pilgrims in as guests, as brothers, as friends. And there is no mention of a price tag. It doesn't mean it's free. It means, you know, everybody gets to think about how can I contribute to this? How can I make sure that The person who comes behind me, the pilgrim coming along behind me in a week, can also stay here because it's sustained somehow. So, you know, what the Donativos try to do is invite people to think about, pilgrims, to think about their stay. And, I mean, inevitably, there are going to be people who have very little funds, for whom a Donativo albergue is a godsend. But if they feel that they want to contribute more than whatever they have, pick up a broom or or a trowel and help dig the herb garden or something. There's always ways to help that are equally valuable. Money is not the definition of everything. And I think this attitude is a vision changer for pilgrims from developed countries where everything seems to have a price. There are some things that don't have a price. Because they are literally priceless. And hospitality of that traditional kind is one of them. I do say in that very almost the last pages of Waybread, I've met so many pilgrims over the years who have described to me instances of what I call disinterested kindness. I won't even go into all the forms that that has taken, but it has made them reevaluate their view of how the world ought to work, not the way it does work, but the way it ought to work or could work, if others could capture that idea and act on it. And that pilgrim very often says, I am going to do that, pay it forward, or pay somebody's bus fare or somebody's coffee or invite the chap who doesn't have to share with me or something like that. It's an infinity of, of ways of expressing that hospitality. I think the Donativo Albergues, which invite pilgrims to participate in the welcome and the stay offered to the next pilgrim, I think they're terribly important. And not only that, they also offer returned pilgrims a way of continuing to participate in the life of the Camino as hospitaleros or sponsors or. People who can, you know, in Gauthelmo, if our washing machine breaks down, we put out a, an appeal and somebody will donate a washing machine in memory of someone or because they've had a rise that year and they can do it. The ways of expressing that kind of solidarity with the pilgrimage are infinite and take many forms, obviously, but I think the Donativos offer that And the pity of it is that we have or I have encountered real resentment on the part of some, very few, but some albergues that are private who resent them because they see them as unfair competition. They see them as taking away clients from themselves. But that's absurd because they're not the same people. There's a very, very broad constituency on the Camino. And people of an economic level who want a certain thing will find it. People who haven't got that should also have some choices and should also be able to do the Camino without necessarily having to budget extraordinarily for it. It's been that way for centuries. And I would hate to see modern conditions alter that. Anyway, that's really what I'm saying. Plurality, I have nothing against and a great deal of respect for. 99% of private facilities, most of them are run by very, very dedicated people, and it's their institutions that have helped to make the Camino more inclusive, you know, so that a retired person or somebody with a disability or somebody in a wheelchair even, or somebody with small children can actually do it. In 1986, that would have been unthinkable.
1: Well, Laurie, thank you for... Speaking with me for writing two books now that every pilgrim should read. And what we didn't talk about as much in this conversation that also shows up in Waybread is how actively involved you were in a lot of the early pilgrimage organization work, conversations that were happening, your general shepherding of the root. As a contributor during its resurgence, you put in a lot of work that pilgrims wouldn't always appreciate, that's invisible, maybe, but you have had a significant impact.
0: Well, thank you, but I would just like to say one final thing, too, and that was that in 1986, I had the tremendous good fortune to meet in my Camino the people who really laid the groundwork, not just Don Elias, but... Just starting at the French border, I mean, Madame de Brille, Francisco berhuete Pablo Payo, and Don José María Alonso, all these marvelous people who had already been doing what they were doing for very few people in the course of the year. But they were out there doing it already. And it was that that made an impact on me as well as the kind of hospitality that they extended to me and that others extended to me, which made such an impact that in a sense, I've been trying to give something back ever since. So I view whatever I did, I view as giving back for something that I was very grateful for and remain so.
1: And I spent an hour talking, but we only scratched the surface of the stories included in Waybread. In particular, I was thrilled to learn more about the history of the Contemporary credential, not to mention the gradual development of the Compostela Certificate, which was far more extensive than I had anticipated. But hey, that's why you gotta buy the book. I learned a lot, you will too. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Lori Dennett for spending an hour with me. You can find Lori's newest book, Waybread: Memories of the Camino for the Onward Journey, on Amazon.com. Her previous book, A Hug for the Apostle, is available used or in a new lavish edition from Words Indeed Publishing in Canada. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening back again next week.